Hey, welcome back, New Life. This is our third week in our series, God Is. We're so glad that you've joined us. Uh, I want to remind you, uh, go back to our YouTube channel. If you missed any of this series, the first two weeks, go back and catch those, okay? We're studying this series called God Is, and we're looking in the scripture at the names of God. Now, when we look at the names of God, the reason we're going back to that is they actually tell us and describe for us character traits of who God is and how he interacts with us. You know, names throughout human history have been used to describe people and explain perhaps where they came from, what their family history is. For example, my first name is Brett. And that name Brett actually means from Britain, more specifically of Celtic origin. So I, which is good because I was actually born in England. So my first name Brett is from Britain, Celtic origin. My middle name Clinton actually means a settlement on a hill. And it refers to a place in England called Glinton. And so that name refers to where I would have lived at a certain point in history. Now, my last name, Avery, actually means elf king. So the reality is when people would look at me, they would have said, oh, you're the Celtic elf king who lives in such and such a place. And we went back in my family history and we looked for some old photos to help you get a little better glimpse of who I am. So I want to show you this photo right now. So take a look at this. This is some of my ancestors. Now, you, you're probably thinking, dude, that is from Lord of the Rings. You're exactly right, okay? But names have meaning, and they describe who we are, where we came from, and parts even about our character. And so today, we're going to jump back into the Scripture, and we're going to look at a name of God that comes out of the Scripture to help us to better understand who God is and get a better biblical worldview of the God that we serve. So before we jump in the Scripture, I want to invite you to pray with me. Father, as we look at your Word today, I pray that you would give us clarity and insight I pray that our spiritual eyes would be opened and we would gain an even deeper and better understanding of who you are in this life that you invite us to in relationship with you. So come our hearts right now, give us ears to hear exactly what your Holy Spirit wants to speak into us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So we're looking at the name of God that comes from the scripture and the name is Yahweh Shalom. Now, several weeks ago, Pastor Dave taught us on what the name Yahweh means. In yours and my copy of God's Word, that name is actually pronounced Lord, and it's all caps. So we know in our language that all caps is not good, that you're yelling at somebody. But in your scripture, when you see all caps around the name of the Lord, it was the most holy utterance of God's name. Now, in our culture, we've become perhaps too familiar with God's name. A lot of people use it in a curse word, God, beep, right? We hear it sometimes depending on where we work, or maybe we've just gotten too comfortable or familiar with the name of God. In Jewish history, this name Yahweh was in fact so sacred and so holy that it was only pronounced one time a year, and that by the high priest, who was the spiritual leader of the nation of Israel. So you imagine, when somebody would get to the part in the scripture where this word Yahweh was used, they would skip it because the name of God was most holy. 
Now, Pastor Dave taught us several weeks ago that this name of God, Yahweh, is actually the name Lord. And it is the most, most powerful, most majestic, most amazing way to remind us of who God is. Now, the second part of this name, Yahweh Shalom, the name Shalom is actually the Jewish word that means peace. But it doesn't mean peace just in the absence of conflict or the absence of problems or the absence of war. This word shalom actually has a much deeper meaning. Now there's a theologian who came up with a definition for this. His name is Cornelius Plantina. And I want to read you this definition because I thought it so well captures what this biblical word shalom actually means. Here's what he says. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator and savior as he opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. That's you and I. So literally, shalom in the scripture is an invitation and a reminder to look back at the creation account in Genesis. If you read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which is the first book in the scripture, you'll see a creation account that God created everything that we know and see. And when God created it, it was perfect. There was a perfect relationship, perfect harmony between all-powerful God and the humanity that he created. And in the creation account, we also see this amazing harmony between man and woman, Adam and Eve. There's a perfect relationship between them. And then between humanity and the creation itself, there's this perfect relationship. So when you read this word shalom in the Jewish Bible, you would be taken back to that moment where God created and designed our world to be in perfect harmony and in perfect peace. That is the ultimate state of what the scripture talks about when we think about this word shalom. Now, the first time that we find the name of God, Yahweh Shalom, in the scripture, everything is not perfect. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. There's absolute chaos and panic and anxiety and fear. And the first place that we find this name of God in Scripture, Yahweh Shalom, is in Judges chapter 6. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, whether it is a paper copy like this, a digital copy on your phone or your iPad or your computer, pull it up now. Judges is the sixth book in, or seventh book in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then the book of Judges. So Judges chapter 6 is where I want you to turn to. And as you're turning there, let me set up for you you the picture of what is going on. So God calls a man named Moses to rescue his people, the nation of Israel, out of bondage in Egypt, right? So God calls Moses. Moses is used powerfully by God to lead the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. He brings them through the desert to the edge of the promised land of what is modern-day Israel. They look into the promised land, even send spies in there. The spies come back and go, there, there's no way we can take this land. There's absolutely no way we can do this. So the nation of Israel backs away from the promised land that God had said he was going to give them. And for 40 years, they spend wandering in the desert. 
And then God goes, okay, you're ready. All of that group of people who said, no, we're not going in, all of them die in the desert. This new group, this new young group of Israelites comes once again to the edge, getting ready to enter. God takes Moses up to a mountain, and Moses dies on the mountain at 120 years old. And a man named Joshua takes over, leads the nation of Israel into the promised land. They conquer the land, and they settle in it. And where we're going to pick up in Judges chapter 6, you see this beginning pattern begin to happen where the nation of Israel starts to follow God and then slowly they just fall away from obedience to God's truth and God's teaching. God sends a problem or a group of people to create a problem for the nation of Israel. Then he sends a judge to lead them back to obedience. And then you see this cycle repeat itself. We follow God. We become disobedient. God sends a punishment. We have a judge. That judge leads us back to following God. And where we're going to pick up in Judges chapter 6, we're seeing this same cycle of obedience and sin, obedience and sin happening again. So look in Judges chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gives them into the hand of the Midianites. Because of the power of the Midianites was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Now you just imagine how fearful and panicked you would have to be to leave your home and go dig a hole in the side of the mountain to hide. Right? That is the level of fear and anxiety that in America, honestly, we've never experienced that before. COVID's been tough. Some of us have been through some seriously tough situations. But what's going on in the scripture right now is it's gotten so bad, you can't even stay in your house. You're not even safe in your house. So then it goes on, verse 3, and says, Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way from Gaza and did not spare a living thing in Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like a swarm of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravish it. Now, capture the picture of what Scripture is giving in here. It's so bad that you can't even stay in your house. It's so bad that everything you own is destroyed. It's so bad that even your livelihood is taken away from you. At that time in Jewish culture, it was an agricultural, so it was a planting, crops, sheep, everything. All of that is wiped off the map. And this is happening for seven years, time after time after time. You ever hit that spot in your life where you feel like you take one step forward and three steps backwards? Where everything that you try doesn't work? And every problem begins to compound itself on top of another problem and another problem and another problem. You ever been there, church? You know what that's like? You feel like you can't, you can't make a right choice. Like everything I do is wrong in the moment, no matter how bad, no matter how much I want to make a, I can't, I can't get anywhere. I'm just going backwards day after day after day. That's where these people are at. You ever been there? You know what that feels like? It feels like this raw, just ugliness in the pit of your stomach, no matter what you do. You cannot get yourself out of that. That's where this group of people is at. That's the feeling in the moment. And sometimes, church, when we're in that spot where we feel like one step forward, five steps backwards, we just keep getting hit, we can say, I really feel like God's abandoned me in this moment. 
I know I felt that way. I've been through some tough moments, and so have you as a church, maybe your family, maybe in a work environment, maybe a relationship environment. You've been in that moment, and you just feel like, God, I think you've left me alone in this moment of desperate need. That's where the Israelites are at in this passage. Now, the challenge of it is that Scripture actually teaches us the opposite. Hebrews 13.5 is one of many passages where the scripture says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. It's a promise that comes from God. So what, what is that? What happens in that moment when you and I feel like life is just throwing these big boulders at us? We can never get up. We can never get our footing. And it feels like God's abandoned us. And yet the scripture says God doesn't do that. What, what's going on? How do we understand this? So look back at the scripture in Judges chapter 6, verse 6. And let's dig in and try to get some better understanding around this moment. Verse 6 says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. Now, a prophet was a spiritual leader who would speak on God's behalf to the people. So he sent him a prophet, and this is what the Lord said. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you out of the power of the Egyptians and from the hand of your, your oppressors. I drove them from your hand, and I drove them before you, and I gave you this land. So God now is speaking to the nation of Israel, going, Hey, remember all the things I've done for you. Remember how I provided for you. Remember how I protected you. Remember how I took care of you and gave you this land. And then here's the secret, and I want you to catch this. He says, Hey, um, I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. Don't worship the God of the Amorites, verse 10, in whose land you live. Now catch this. I want you to circle this last part. But you have not listened to me. You've not listened to me. Now as a parent, I, I know those moments when I look at my son and he's done something that I've told him not to do. And I go, dude, uh, you just didn't listen to me, right? What God is saying to this nation of Israel in this moment is, hey, you've walked away from obeying the things that I've told you to obey. Now, here's the lesson I want you to catch, church. There are times when you and I are struggling, right? We're getting hit left and right with these haymakers of life. And we're going, God, I don't feel any peace in this moment. I don't know what is going on, but I can't get anything right what is happening, God? And the truth of Scripture is that sometimes, church, when you and I find ourselves in that moment, sometimes it's because we're not being obedient to the will and the teaching of God. We're disobeying the, the plan that God's laid out for us in our lives. So if you're following along in your notes, I want you to write this down, okay? My obedience in God's peace are often connected. My obedience and God's peace are often connected. Now, here's the teaching of Scripture. There are times where the struggle that you and I are going through is because we've been disobedient to the will of God. And catch this, God in His grace and mercy allows us to live in a place of struggle until our lives are brought back in obedience to the teaching of Scripture. Did you catch that? There are times where God in his grace and mercy allows us to stay in the struggle 
until our lives are brought back into obedience and alignment with the teaching and the truth of God's word. Now, please hear this. Every time that you and I struggle, okay, it does not mean that we're being disobedient to the scripture. So every time that we face a struggle, it doesn't mean, uh oh, you sinned and God's punishing you. Okay, the scripture actually teaches in James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 that there are times in our lives when we're literally supposed to consider it joy that we're going through struggles. What does that mean? It means that we're supposed to have a different outlook on our struggle because it's not caused by my sin. So James 1, 2, 2 to 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of many kinds. Why? Because the testing of your faith that gives us the purpose of the struggle, the struggle is literally designed to strengthen our faith. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. So God's allowing some kind of struggle into our lives at times so that it will increase the depth of our faith and of our relationship with the Lord. So it says the testing of your faith produces perseverance and perseverance when it's come full circle leads you to a place of maturity. So there are times church and please hear this there are times when you and I are struggling in a broken world and God's allowing that because he's using that in our life to mature us. But a parallel teaching of scripture is that there are also times in our lives church where the reason we're struggling is because we've been disobedient to the will and plan of God for our lives. So in a real practical way, what, what do you and I do with that? Here's what I'm going to challenge you with, okay? When you and I are in that place where we're struggling, like the nation of Israel is here, and we feel like one step forward, five steps backwards, one of the responsibilities that we have before the Lord is we go to him in prayer and we say, God, what's going on here? Is this struggle because somehow I'm not in alignment with your will and your teaching and your word? God, is there something I'm doing in my life? Is there a way I'm engaging? Is there a way I'm thinking? Is there a way I'm acting that is out of alignment with biblical truth? And we hold our lives very loosely and we hold them up against the scripture and we say, God, is anything that I'm doing right now not in alignment with the truth of your word? And if God points that out to you, then our job, church, is to confess that and bring our lives back into alignment with the truth and the teaching of God's word. Okay? Now, recently... Uh, about nine months ago, I started sitting down with a Christian counselor. And I've shared with you over the years, God's used some Christian counselors in powerful ways in my life. But there were areas of my life where I knew I didn't have peace. You ever been there? I mean, you look at spots or moments in your life and you go, yeah, that, that's just painful. That's, that's, that's not a place of peace for me. That's a place of hurt for me. And what had happened is I had allowed certain hurts or offenses to create bitterness in my heart around some things. And I was struggling. I wasn't at peace. And so I sat down with a Christian counselor and it's a, it's a serious, um, it's, a, it's a method of counseling called IFS, Internal Family Systems. My counselor's name is Meg. And for the last nine months, about once or twice a month, we're walking through over video counseling some of these broken spaces in my life. And some of these areas are because I've been disobedient to the will and teaching of God. And so part of it's been redemptively identifying those spaces, confessing those spaces, and bringing them back into alignment with the truth of God's word. Some of those things that are broken in my life and are places of pain are not a result of something I've done. Some of them are just things that have happened to me and they were painful and we kind of walked through it. But 
What you and I need to do, church, is when we have those areas of disruption, those areas of struggle, we need to bring them to the Lord and say, God, is this something where I've stepped away? Because my obedience and God's peace are oftentimes connected. So one of the ways that we find peace, the shalom, in the middle of the struggle is we go, God, is this one on me? And if it is, will you bring me to a place of repentance and healing in this as I bring my life back into alignment? Okay, now let's jump back into the scripture again and let's pick up in verse 11 of Judges. So what we've got in the first part of chapter 6 is we've got kind of this macro view of God's interaction with the nation of Israel. And then in verse 11, it goes to this micro view of God's interaction with one person named Gideon. So verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belongs to Joash the Abizarite, say that fast like four times, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now let me set the stage for you. Um, this is definitely out in the country because the directions are, hey, you know that big oak tree? Yeah, that belongs to that guy, Joash. Yeah, that, that tree, remember that one? Okay, so this is a very country moment. He goes, yeah, that, that's where God went. So catch this, church. In the middle of a nation's pain, God doesn't abandon them. He actually comes down to be with an individual in the middle of that tough moment. I love that here. And then God shows up and Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, uh, back then they used to thresh wheat on top of these hills, all open and exposed so that the chaff would, would disappear. Gideon is so scared for his life that he's hiding under the branches of an oak tree and he's beating out the wheat inside a wine press, which would have just been a little box. So literally, the guy's got almost nothing. He's in hiding. He is an absolute coward, doesn't want to lose his life. And this is where God comes into the moment and finds him. And look at how God greets him. This is so cool. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, if that's a moment for humor, I don't know what is in the scripture. So Gideon is hiding. He's displaying <laughs> the attitude of a coward. He is literally like, I'm, I, I don't want anybody to see me doing this. God comes in, sits down right next to him and goes, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Which causes us to ask this question. Do we see ourselves like God sees us? See, sometimes church in the middle of the struggle... We look at the struggle and we look at ourselves and we go, there's, there's no way I can deal with this. This is overpowering to me. It's creating so much anxiety. I can't even, I can't even move. I can't even respond in the moment. I don't want to face the challenge. I want to hide from the challenge. And we begin to see ourselves in perspective of the struggle instead of in perspective of who we are in Christ. That's where Gideon is right here. So God comes down and gives him a totally different perspective. See, God saw Gideon as he was created to be. Gideon saw himself as he was acting in the moment. How do you see yourself? Has the struggle caused you to look at yourself as a defeated, broken person? Or do you actually see yourself as God created and called you to be? So Gideon, when God greets him this way, verse 13 says, But sir... If the Lord is with us, now catch the little miss here. God said to Gideon, the Lord is with you. Gideon, singular, Gideon turns it around and makes it global. Well, if God is with us, that's not what God said. 
God said he's with you. But here's, here's Gideon, verse 13. But sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, didn't the Lord bring you up out of Egypt? But now, and catch this, it's so human, but now the Lord has abandoned us. Very human, right? The problem is out there. God's not doing anything about it. He's abandoned us, and he's left us to this situation. He says he's abandoned us, put us in the hands of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And then Gideon responds in a way where we often do as humans. But Lord, he came back with the excuses. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Verse 16, the Lord answered him, and I want you to circle this, I will be with you. Circle that phrase, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. That one phrase, I will be with you, is kind of the key to hope that you and I have when we're struggling. How do we really find peace in the middle of our struggle? That line, I will be with you, is the key. So circle that, highlight it, do whatever you need to. So here's what happens. In the next couple of verses, Gideon begins to become clued in to who this person actually is. And through a series of the next, say, 10 verses or so, he goes, this is God. This is not a messenger from God who I've been talking to is God. And then he builds an altar for God and he calls the altar Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace, which is the first time we find this name used in scripture. See, Gideon's focus had shifted. All of a sudden, Gideon realized, yes, the problem is still out there, but I've got God with me. And in that discovery of God with him, Everything shifted in his life, and he came to this place of peace. Now, if you're following along in your notes, I want you to write this thing in for the second part, okay? It's that I will find peace as I embrace Jesus. I will find peace as I embrace Jesus. Verse 24 says, So Gideon built an altar to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. And to this day it stands in Oprah. Now, it's true, church, that God gifts us his peace, right? It's true that God gives us his peace. Actually, uh, John 14, 27 says, My peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives peace. So yes, it is very true that God gives us peace in the middle of our struggle. But the deeper teaching... The foundational teaching of this passage and many other passages is the gift that God gives to us is not peace. Did you catch that? The gift that God gives to us is not peace. The true gift, the deeper teaching of Scripture, is the gift that God gives to us is Jesus. That's why the sentence says, I will find real peace as I embrace Jesus. Because the teaching of Scripture is the way that you and I find peace in the struggle, the way that really everything kind of clears out in the fog and we find a pathway through, is not that somehow we magically get peace. It's that we fully embrace Jesus. 
Because what culture wants to do is culture wants to tell you and I that if we line up all the things in our lives, if we get our hands somehow around our family, our work, what's going on within our culture, our life, our hobbies, and somehow we line all those things up in a certain way, all the circumstances make sense. If we do all that, we'll find peace. And that's the lie of culture. That somehow you and I can generate our own peace by getting our hands sufficiently around all the parts of our life. But what the scripture teaches is that you and I should not pursue peace. You and I should pursue Jesus. And the result of my pursuit of Jesus is that he gifts me peace. Why? Because my focus changes. Remember the name of God? All of a sudden I'm reminded Yahweh, the all-powerful God, he's got this. See, what culture wants to do is tell me to control my circumstances, and when I control my circumstances, I'll find peace. What Jesus does is Jesus goes, connect with me, trust me, focus on me, and by doing so, he gifts me peace. Totally different way to think about this, church. So here's what this looks like from a very practical way in Gideon's life. Nothing actually changed in his life. If you look at the scripture, Midianites are still there. If you look at the scripture, he still has had seven years of famine. If you look at the scripture, all the animals have still been killed. Literally nothing has changed in Gideon's situation, and yet he's able to say, Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. Why? Because his focus shifted. Earlier on in the passage, the focus is the Midianites, the problems, the issues, the struggles. You don't get it, God. You've abandoned us. Then he understands who God is. His focus shifts to an all-powerful God, and he goes, the Lord is peace. If you look at verse 24, he doesn't say the Lord gave peace. He says the Lord is peace. So here's the heart of the scripture, church. You and I, the way that you and I actually find real peace is not chasing it, is not trying to get our lives in order, it's not figuring out how to do better, it's pursuing Jesus. And that in the pursuit of Jesus, the result is that we find peace because we realize that he's so much more powerful and able than any struggle we face. He's got it. He's got you and I. He's big enough for whatever struggle we're facing. No matter how many times you get hit, no matter how many times you get sucker punched, no matter how many curveballs life throws at you and I, our God is enough. And when I hang on to Jesus in the middle of the storm, that's where I find peace. So what does this look like from a real practical place? Okay, here's what it looks like. It means that every time the struggle gets my focus, I have to realign my focus on the person of Jesus. Every time my kids' school, my work, the struggle with my spouse, the relationship that I have with family, the struggles of culture, this COVID thing that just seems to keep going and going, every time that pulls my focus and I go, wow, that's a big problem, what the scripture teaches me is, is what I need to do is go, God, I'm focusing on the problem instead of on you. Help me to shift my focus and realign and remind me of how powerful you are and let me rest inside of that. Now, this is not a one and done, Okay. This is not, I've done it once and it should work for all eternity. This is literally a moment by moment thing, church. 
When we realize our focus has shifted, we need to ask God to shift our focus back. When we feel pulled away and we become anxious and in despair, we need to ask God to give us the joy and the hope that is only found in relationship with Jesus. It's literally a moment-by-moment thing. Now, some of you are aware that on October 9th of this year, my dad passed away. So a couple weeks ago. My dad had had a 14-year battle with uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer. And on October 9th, God called him home. The last couple of months uh, have been incredibly tough as a family. There's moments where my mom would call us in the middle of the night and say, your dad's running 104 fever. There's moments where doctors are telling us, I don't think he's going to make it through the day. There's moments where we're trying to just, I mean, literally we're getting blown up all the time and what I saw in my family in those moments and I'm so thankful for this is we pulled each other back to Jesus one or the other of us would go hey let's pray about this let's ask God to speak into this let's ask God to give us clarity sometimes there wasn't a clear right choice as to what to do or how to love and care for my dad in his last days And there's times where we literally stepped away from his bed and would walk out in the hallway and we would just pray with each other. But every time we prayed, God gave us peace. Every time we prayed, God gave us peace. Why? Because we refocused our hearts on the person of Jesus. Church, please hear this. There's nothing that you're going to face, no struggle that you're going to experience that is ever bigger than your God. There's nothing you're going to face, there's no struggle you're going to experience that is ever bigger than your God and his ability to handle it. So in those moments where you're struggling, in those moments where life is literally piling it on you and it seems like there's no way out, The teaching of scripture is you and I ask God to change our focus back to the person of Jesus. And we embrace Jesus and by embracing Jesus, we find peace. Let me pray for you. Father, as as we walk into even this afternoon, today, tomorrow, uh, this next season or challenge, I pray that you would help us to remember that you are Yahweh Shalom, the all-powerful God who speaks real peace into the struggles of our life. I pray, God, that you would encourage the hearts of our church, even now, in this moment, that you would help all of us to remember what an amazing and powerful God you are. And in that, we would find the peace that you offer. Thanks for this time and this chance to connect and engage in your word together. I pray a blessing on our church this week as they go. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Hey church, thanks for joining us this weekend. Be blessed and be a blessing.